You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Yes, I have returned. I have turned up again after a long absence, perhaps presumed missing. You know, Kevin, you actually disappeared kind of like a famous painting I recently heard about. Well, probably less valuable monetarily, but hopefully just as treasured. On this episode of Seeing and Believing, we welcome Kevin back with our review of John Crowley's The Goldfinch. And I'm also looking forward to getting back in the saddle, Wade, with another one of my favorite kind of segments to record with you. We're doing our fall movie preview this episode, offering our top five picks for the upcoming films of awards season. You know, Kevin, I can only assume that Zombieland Double Tap is going to be number one, number two, number three, four, and five on your list. Nice try, Wade. It's actually going to be Little Women filling up all five of my slots this week. You know, Kevin, it would have been on my list, except Christian Bale isn't coming back. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 217 of Seeing and Believing. Mom, I've got a guest for you. Now, you must tell me, what have you been doing with your life? Uh, dealing antiques. <gasps> antiques. When you were a child, I used to catch you studying my paintings. You'd always go straight to the very best ones, the Peel, the Lane, the Copley. I used to think, ah, oh, a kindred spirit. Mrs. Barber, I am so sorry. I don't need to tell you about loss. Hmm? That is a clip from The Goldfinch. We're going to get into our review here in a minute. Kevin, welcome back. It has been four weeks since you and I have talked on the podcast. I don't know what I would have done if you would have pushed your vacation a little bit farther. I I just, I don't know how I would have made (laughs) Well, I'm sure you would have been doing just fine. I haven't had a chance yet to listen in full to the episodes you recorded in my absence, but I'm really looking forward to that. You had some really great uh, guests filling in for me. I kind of wish that I had taken a little bit more vacation, both so I could have had more time in Greece and also so that they could have had more time on the show. Yeah, well, they did great. So Sarah Welch Larson came on a couple weeks ago, and then Blake Collier came on last week. And that was a lot of fun. I am glad that you're back. Did you have a chance, Kevin, to watch any movies while you were out? Read any books? Do anything pop culture centric? Or was it mostly just hanging out and and relaxing? Uh, It was primarily hanging out and relaxing. I did get quite a bit of reading done. As for movies, you know, part of the thing about going 
on vacation, kind of the, a tourist hub like Greece, is there's a lot of really touristy stuff that they you know put in there, especially for the Americans who are there on vacation. So there were movie theaters over there. A disproportionate number of them were playing My Big Fat Greek Wedding and uh, Mamma Mia. In, <laughs> in, like Pretty much that was their entire schedule. I don't know what kind of person travels halfway across the world just the, so they can go watch Mamma Mia in a movie theater, but... Hey, it takes all kinds, I guess. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's fascinating. Um, I don't, I've never done that, uh, but bucket list is to see both of those films in Greece, like you're supposed to see it, right? As it was meant <laughs> as, to be seen, <laughs> as the makers intended. Yes. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, hey, I am glad to have you back. I had some awesome guests while you are on, but you're here now. We are going to get into the fall season here soon, and so we're going to have our fall preview. I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to talk about our top five most anticipated films of the fall that are at least scheduled. We know some new ones pop up every once in a while, but what we have on the schedule right now. So I am, I'm just so excited about that. We are, however, going to get things going on this episode of Seeing and Believing with our review of John Crowley's The Gold Finch, directed by Crowley, who most recently made waves with his 2015 film Brooklyn. The Gold Finch follows a young boy named Theo, who is taken in by a wealthy New York family after the death of his mother in a bombing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Eventually, the film opens up, revealing how Theo's past affects his adulthood, and how one of his deepest secrets just may unravel everything as he knows it. Based off the acclaimed Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Donna Tart, Crowley's film sinks its way into a gritty underworld of art, wealth, and sophistication, starring Enzel Elgort, Nicole Kidman, Jeffrey Wright, and Sarah Paulson. The Goldfinch is an examination of grief, as well as the steady forces of consumerism. Kevin, it has been four weeks since you've reviewed a film with me here on Seeing and Believing. The Goldfinch is our first effort since your return. So, my question to you is this. Was The Goldfinch worth the wait? Is it a welcome home present? Well, it's it's certainly a very handsome film. One thing that I was looking forward to about The Goldfinch was can be summed up in two words, Roger Deakins. And uh so and I I will say that having that to look forward to was something that I was anticipating. I'd heard a lot about the novel. I haven't had the chance to read it yet. And after seeing the film, I actually it makes me want to check out the the novel even more, which speaks very well to the story. I don't think it suggests a lot of good things about the film itself. This is a very handsome movie. It's also a very kind of a, a structurally lumpy movie, I guess you could say. There's there's nothing really that you could put your finger on that's that's wrong with it or amateurish. John Crowley's a an excellent director. I liked Brooklyn quite a bit. But the novel Brooklyn is about 300 pages long. The Goldfinch is over twice as long as that. 
And with a screenplay that really seems to be doing its best to be faithful to the source material, this this movie has a structure that makes that very clear, shall we say. It, it, it is very long. It's almost three hours, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of energy expended on the part of the screenwriters, or even maybe on Crowley's part, to to shape the material in a way that gives it some some momentum or finds a, a unifying motif. It's kind of just the story told um, in a pretty straightforward manner. There are some chronological, a, a chronological tricks that presumably come from the novel, like flashbacks uh, interleaved in with the story of our main character, uh, Theo, in the present day as, as an adult, but it doesn't really seem to be structured in a way that works cinematically. It seems more like that was just in the source material, and so they kind of just went with that. And I think that's a mistake with this with this story, and even though I found myself interested in the narrative, I don't think that Crowley finds a cinematic shape for it that, that is fully satisfying. You know, Kevin, I I don't have very many positive things to say about this film. I just did not like it. The story is intriguing at the beginning, but I, I don't know if the narrative ever fully finds its way. I don't know if the director, if the screenwriters ever have a handle on this material. I like Brooklyn a lot, and... What I, what I found so different about this movie is there is this, this warmth and this intimacy to Brooklyn. Now, Deacons's photography here, it, it almost lends this sort of creamy, regal atmosphere to the movie, but the film wastes every opportunity to build on that ethos. And instead, we get a film that's emotionally detached and then also narratively detached. These are a bunch of scenes. I don't know if I would say that this is a movie. It's a bunch of vignettes connected together, and it just didn't work for me. And, and you know, you walk away saying, oh, I'd like to read this novel. I walk away saying, I, I don't know what the novel is. But if this is what comes from the novel, I'm not sure if I'm interested. I'm, I'm, I bet the novels is, is fine. I mean, there are a lot of people who really enjoy it, but I just, I did not take to this movie or really even connect uh, to this movie in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah. I, you know, that's an interesting question about why it could be compelling in one form and not in another. And I think that there's, and again, not having read the novel, this is, is speculation, but at least in a novel, there, there's a lot more potential to explore the interiority of the characters in, in a way that feels pretty natural, right? Like you have the ability to, to narrate a character's thoughts, and that's something that cinema historically is just, you know, it's, it's, that's not one of the medium's strengths. And I wonder if, we're missing kind of that secret ingredient that is the glue that holds, as you say, the sequential progression of scenes together in a, in a way. When you watch, watching this film, I guess, is an exercise in finding 
maybe individual scenes compelling, but then after the scene ends, it moves on to another one that might also be individually compelling, but doesn't seem to follow on very naturally from what preceded it. And to Crowley's credit, I think that the editing, the the way this film is edited together and the way that he shot it uh, to give it some shape in the editing room um, does seem like he's aware of this problem. There's a lot of match cuts that he plays with when going between uh, the flashbacks and the present day. There's some rhyming images or rhyming compositions that he uses to suggest parallels between certain characters, uh, you know, characters looking at themselves in a mirror, and then there is a cut to some other characters also beholding their reflections and that seems to be designed with an eye towards suggesting a parallelism. So it seems to his credit like Crowley is aware that this screenplay is a little bit unwieldy and he's trying to give it some some shape in these ways. I think the problem is maybe that these characters, we never really get in into the insides of them. The the outsides, the Deacon's crafted cinematography is all very attractive. And the performances, for the most part, with maybe a couple of exceptions, are fine, but we never really kind of get into the skin of these characters and, and really understand them beyond kind of a surface level. At least that's the impression I got. Which means that Crowley's attempts to suggest these parallelisms or these relationships don't quite land because we don't really like we we recognize that that's what he's doing, but there's not really the foundational work that we need in order for it to really land on an emotional level and make sense dramatically. Yeah, and I mean thinking about this movie too, and particularly adult Theo. Just from a basic cinematic standpoint, what is he after? What is his motivation? And it goes back to what you talked about in we're not really inside of his head. We don't really know what this character wants per se. I think we get these emotions and these feelings. He wants some sort of uh, peace possibly. So if you could say, okay, all of that's X. So he's going after X and this movie – he wants X. And then there's this revelation with about maybe 20, 25 minutes left. And the whole movie becomes about, okay, now he's going after Y. And when that's resolved, the film ends. And I'm left sort of just wondering what his character did or where his character went or the arc of his character. And I, I understand that a film can do something like, okay, a character's going after this. They get something else and it helps them to realize that they don't need X or they have everything they need to achieve X, whatever that is. The film doesn't connect those dots by the end of the movie. And so it, it just kind of, it kind of stops. And I think we kind of get it. He's dealing with grief and the grief of his mom, but what happened that changed all of that? And part of it is just everything sort of rushed at the end, and we get this very long movie, a a movie that – 
I mean, two weeks in a row, right? You didn't have to sit through it chapter two, Kevin, but it chapter two, you know, it's almost three hours too. And just here, it's, it's just so, it's just so dull. And I, you know, and that, that just kind of exacerbates all of the problems that I have with this movie. You know, you, you talk about the kind of the final act of this film and it, it really doesn't work. It's a lot of incident crammed into the last half hour. And all of a sudden there's, you know, kind of this crime thriller thing going on. There's, you know, some, some gun toting standoffs and it feels a little bit, it feels a little bit silly, I guess, for lack of a better word, because the bulk of this movie is really seems to be attempting a character study of sorts of Theo of exploring the 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 trauma and grief and guilt he feels over the attack that takes his mother's life and um destroys an entire wing of a museum and everything that ensues after that and it seems to want to kind of dig into well how does he react to this swirl of emotions as a boy and how did those emotions kind of grow with him as he also grows and matures and i i appreciate that impulse but the the odd thing with this film is it it seems to the the themes that it puts forward seem primed for a very sedate character study and yet there's just so much plottiness in the movie there's so much plot there's so much incident uh we kind of ping pong from from one subplot to the next and they never really mesh with each other in a way that by the end you feel like the character arc that has been begun in the opening minutes has been uh completed in the closing minutes i don't Say I wouldn't say that that's something that totally sinks the movie for me. I think I might like it a little bit better than you, but I don't disagree with you at all that there's just something not quite satisfying with Theo's character arc. There's intriguing hints that are dropped about the nature of family, the way that he kind of spends the entire film moving from surrogate family to surrogate family, always kind of searching for the mother that he loses in the attack. But the film, there's never really a a fully satisfying payoff to all of that. It's sort of like there's this this climax with uh, some art thieves and drug dealers that, that we get, and then that gets resolved and the movie stops. <laughs> and it doesn't really feel like that's a satisfying culmination, even though there's, you know, this little coda that tries to put a little nice button on it, but it, it doesn't read, it, it doesn't feel fully satisfying. Yeah, and, and I would even raise you this. I don't even think it's that the film is is very plotty. I think it's, there's really no plot. There's just a lot of stuff that happens. There's just things that are happening, but there's no direction and really kind of no focus. And in the end, I'm kind of like you, Kevin, wondering what this film wants to be about. So it it situates itself as a movie about grief. It also wants to be about art. It also wants to be about friendship. But I don't think there's anything there 
that's revelatory. I don't think there's anything there that, that really interests me besides, hey, art can be powerful, uh, grief can be bad, and friendship is good. Like, that's sort of what the film has to say. And it has so much space and it takes to- so much time. And yet it, it doesn't well, really work through those questions. Well, okay. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I, if I'm going to go that far with you. I do think that there, there are some interesting things that it does bring up that go beyond just sort of like friendship is good, family is good, all of these things. It does seem to suggest that there's an elusive quality to art and kind of the transitory nature of life that we have things that we want to hold with us, whether it's our memories or our family members or a romance and it always kind of slips through our grasp. And so something like the painting is sort of what everything else hinges on becomes a metaphor for all of those things. And also because it is so old and represents this legacy, it's almost a symbol for how you can overcome that transitory nature of existence. And I think that is, that is a, compelling thing to tease out. I don't think the goldfinch fully succeeds in teasing it out the way that it wants to, but I think there's a little bit more there than maybe you're giving it credit for. Well, I I feel like your explanation of that is worth more than what I saw in the movie. <laughs> it, it, it you know, we see it. Okay, yeah. He there's a painting he got it when his his, his mom passed away and he holds on to it because he's it's a way for him to hold on to his mom. Okay, we get it. But there's, I don't think there's any other expl- exploration that happens outside of that basic piece of information. And yeah, like I said, you said it great. I think what you say is awesome. I just don't think the film <laughs> gets to that level. I mean, it, it, yeah, the the plot, the, the amount of incident in this story maybe distracts from that a little bit. Maybe that's kind of what I'm getting at when I say that it's shaped kind of like a character study or like something a lot more deliberate and and deliberately paced, but the actual screenplay just crams so much, uh, so many events into this story that it kind of crowds out some of that more deliberate meditative uh, stuff that that really I think is the strongest parts of the film. Yeah, well, that is, uh, I think, a good way to put it and a good way to end our review. Listeners, The Goldfinch is currently playing in theaters. We'd love to get your thoughts. Maybe you have seen the book and you can basically help us to have a better idea of this material, whether you think the movie did a good job of representing the book, or maybe you you think the movie didn't do a good job of representing the book. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod, or you can email us something longer. We'd love to read through it, possibly even read it on the air and discuss it. You can do that CAPC at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about our most anticipated films of the fall season. That'll be coming up here in just a moment.
song is So What by Mad Bello. We really appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to support us on Patreon. You keep our show going, and it just humbles us. Uh, it, it really just excites us to know that people are backing Seeing and Believing, and they are helping us to do what we do week in and week out. We have a couple of different levels of donation for our Patreon supporters, and one of those is the $5 a month level, and we actually call it, Kevin, the what can you buy for $5 level. It's a really kind of unique, catchy name, and I was thinking about that while you're gone, thinking it over in my mind, and I wanted to ask (laughs) you this question. What could someone buy for $5? Well, you know, having come back from Europe, I still have a little bit of Europe on the brain, and it is the season of Oktoberfest right now, so $5 would probably be able to purchase you some lightly used lederhosen. Lightly used? Okay. And I guess (laughs) brand new, that would be maybe $10, but lightly used would be 5 I mean, who knows how much brand new Lederhosen would run you? Probably an mm. astronomical sum, mm. which is why you buy them used. You know, it's like it's like a car. It's much more economical to get them used than to buy them new. $5 seems about right. Yeah, because here's the thing. When you drive Lederhosen off of the lot, it decreases by 10% in value just by – they could be brand new, but just by driving it off the lot, you lose 10% brand 100%. new. 100%. And insuring them? <laughs> woof. You're, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a money pit, but if you have to have them, going used is the way to go. It definitely is. Listeners, you can buy those for $5 or you can support us monthly on Patreon. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. $5 a month will not only help you support us with our Patreon, but $5 a month will also let you become a member of Christ and Pop Culture and support all the great writing that goes up on ChristandPopCulture.com. Wade, there's a pretty interesting article that uh, KB Hoyle wrote for us uh, about a week ago about uh, the new Joaquin Phoenix movie, Joker, that's coming out in October. You know, we're going to be offering our fall movie preview, and I'm not going to spoil whether that film is on one of our top fives, but the article that KB Hoyle wrote about it I thought was pretty interesting. It's titled Dancing with Milton Satan, The Joker, and a Fascination with Evil, and it's a really intriguing look at anti-heroes, what attracts us to them, and the potential pitfalls of finding ourselves maybe too taken in by charismatic evil. So she begins by talking about John Milton's Paradise Lost, which I happen to think is one of the greatest works of literature in the entire English language. So of course I'm in the bag for that. But then she goes on to talk about G.K. Chesterton, Heath Ledger's Joker in the Dark Knight, and then progressing to Joaquin Phoenix's Uh, stint as the character in the upcoming Joker. It's a really interesting article. Highly recommend it to our listeners. And if you become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, that is the sort of writing that you help support with your hard-earned dollars. Well, I am looking forward to that article because I I like Paradise Lost as well. And I'm, I'm not going to ruin whether the Joker is on my list or not, but... 
there is this really kind of interest I have with the movie and the origin story. I, I read The Killing Joke not too long ago, which also explores Joker's origin a bit, but also Batman is still, he's still the hero. So it's definitely an interesting take and one that I, I think is probably going to cause a lot of division when the movie comes out. So we can all kind of gear up for that and, and be ready for that. Yeah, it'll be a great conversation starter for sure. If you've read that article or anything else on ChristandPopCulture.com and you think it relates to the show, maybe you also have some ideas about the show or some opinions about the films that we talk about, especially our fall preview. We'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, it's at SeaBeliefPod, at SeaBeliefPod, or SeeingAndBelievingCAPC at gmail.com. with the second half of our show and that is a phrase wade that i have not said for about four (laughs) weeks now yeah so it's good to to have it coming out of my mouth once again and i'm looking forward especially to this second segment i love doing top fives they are some of our lengthier segments which is going to be maybe a little bit of an adjustment for you i know that when you uh, recorded with Sarah Welch Larson, that was a much tighter episode, a lot shorter. So mm. I apologize in advance if this goes a little bit longer than than usual because we like to talk about what we're excited about. <laughs> yeah, and too, I, I was looking through my my quote unquote top ten so far for 2019, and realistically, I think there's like four that could maybe end up on my top 10 at the end of the year and maybe not even that it's just been a slower season obviously there have been some good films that i have liked a couple films that i've really loved but this fall season is pretty stacked and if we do talk long it's just because like you said kevin we are so excited about the movies coming up and are really hoping that we have a great closeout to to 2019 (laughs) And here's hoping that maybe in the midst of my excitement, I can rein it in a little bit and, you know, keep it a little bit tighter than usual. I will say, though, Wade, that that what you just described about not feeling like it's it's been a particularly strong year so far, I kind of sympathize with that. The uh, running list of my favorite films from the year is also a little bit scanty compared to previous years. So I'm looking forward to all the good stuff that seems to be headed our way here in the fall and winter season. 
A little disclaimer before we get into our top fives, though. Uh, James Gray Ad Astra is um, going to be reviewed on the show. I think next week is when we have it on the schedule. So even though it would have been on my top five, and in fact, probably at number one, uh, because I've been looking forward to that film for quite a long time. Um, because we're reviewing it next week, it's just not eligible for either of our lists. So just to forestall any angry emails from listeners who are also James Gray fans. Before we jump in, is there anything else that went into the formation of your of your list that you found surprising or difficult or maybe just uh, interesting as the list took shape for you. Yeah, well, I do have to say, I have seen Ad Astra, and I'm not going to say whether I liked it or whether I didn't like it, uh, so it's not an anticipated movie anymore, Kevin. So I, I kind of moved that off the list. And I think originally it was supposed to be in the summer, supposed to release in the summer, and I, I think I had it on my list uh, during yeah, that time. I, I, I think our in our summer preview or maybe our spring preview, I might have even had it on my top five then. Mm-hmm. I, I think I did. So it, it it was a long time coming, but it's good that it's finally here. Yeah, I and I think for my list, you know, it's always just it's it's just follow the force, right? It's like, hey, you know, what do you really want to go see? Uh in the summer there I felt like there were a lot of blockbusters. It was a very blockbuster heavy list. And I have a couple of I guess you could say some blockbusters on this list, but I'm really excited that we're going to get some unique films. We're going to get some original films. And that just has me over the moon because there are some movies that are not franchise movies. They won't have sequels and one and dones. And so I am just very pumped about that. So that's, that's kind of a, I guess you could say an overview of what I observed as I was looking at the fall season. Sounds a lot like uh, my own experience putting together my top five. So uh, let's get into it, actually. So what is what, yeah. do, you, what do you have at, at your number five list to kick us off? Yeah, so yesterday at number five, I actually have James, I had James Mangold's Ford vs. Ferrari. So it's the story. It stars Matt Damon and also Christian Bale. As you remember, too, Mangold directed Logan and Walk the Line, films that I really do like. And then I was reminded, Kevin, of another film. And for some reason, I just, I didn't think about it as I was putting together this list. And I said, no, it has to be on the list. So I moved out Ford vs. Ferrari, a film that I am very much looking forward to. And I moved in that slot, Trey Edward Schultz, uh, his film, Schultz's Waves. It's to be released on November 1st. Here's the movie's official synopsis. Two young couples navigate the emotional minefield of growing up and falling in love. That's not a lot of information. The trailer is not plot heavy, but it really does look fantastic. Schultz is one of those filmmakers that I've been watching for years. Cretia is a phenomenal picture, and it was on my top 10 uh, of that year when it was released. I enjoyed It Comes at Night. It's fallen a little bit uh, after that first viewing. But this film looks to continue Schultz's emphasis on family relationships, which play a large part in both of his previous films. It also stars one of my favorite actors working today, Sterling K. Brown. I think he's fantastic, but 
I feel like he hasn't been in a lot of great movies. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing him here. And then two, the, the trailer for Waves opens with a quote from 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about love and the idea of love and the persistence and the patience of love. And I am excited about Schultz exploring that within the context of all of these relationships. How does that love look like? What does it look like on the ground? So yeah, Waves by Trey Edward Schultz. And like I mentioned earlier, it's set to be released at this time uh, on November 1st. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. It doesn't boast. Love also forgets wrong. How I do It's been hard Hasn't it? Let go of a prayer for you How you doing with everything? I'm good Just a sweet word You know it's okay if you're not The table is prepared for you I'm trying to give you the tools to succeed in this world It's not easy out there Everything I do is for you Everything I know you're under a lot of pressure right now But I'm just getting really scared Everything's gonna be okay, all right? Always. We're in this together. Yeah, that is a film that I am looking forward to quite a bit. It's actually my number six, so didn't quite make the cut for my top five list. But I'm with you in thinking that Schultz is just, he's a filmmaker with a lot of promise. I think Cretia was a a pretty stunning uh, film to to come out from such a, a relatively inexperienced director. It Comes at Night was maybe not exactly what a lot of people were expecting from him as a follow-up, but I thought it also, there was a lot of strong points to it. And with Waves, just the subject matter sounds really great. So I'm looking forward to that one quite a bit. November 1st is going to be a little bit of a packed weekend, though, Wade, and that is going to be the weekend for my number five as well. I'm looking forward to Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, which is his first collaboration, first narrative feature collaboration with Netflix. This is, of course, the story of Frank Sheeran. He's a mob hitman who is involved with the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. And looking at this cast list, it's like a who's who of Scorsese heavy hitters. You've got Robert De Niro, 
Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel. I mean, the the cast list just looks incredible. It's Martin Scorsese kind of returning to a comfort zone for him in the tale of, you know, mob families and hitmen and uh, exploring a certain arm of the crime underworld. And I don't think that my favorite Scorsese pictures actually come from that setting, but there's no question that it is a setting that he feels eminently comfortable in. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with this particular story. I'm also looking forward to seeing Ray Romano play a uh, member of the Buffalino crime family. Uh, That is going to be Something that I'm I'm going to be interested to see if Romano has the range to pull it off. I think he can do it, but we'll see. Scorsese's The Irishman coming out on November 1st is my number five. Yeah, so it's actually my number four, so I'll just kind of continue this conversation. I'm very excited about this picture. This movie has made headlines uh, due to it not only being over budget, but also for reportedly using de-aging technology on a number of different performers, including De Niro. So how that's going to turn out, I, I'm i not sure. I'm not too familiar with this story and what all happens, but I'm hoping I'll have a chance to see it in its limited run before it hits Netflix. I want to see this on the big screen, and Scorsese and Gangsters always has me interested. I wasn't a huge fan of Casino, I do like Goodfellas, and I like The Departed. So this one I'm hoping will be a more like the, like Goodfellas and The Departed versus Casino. I'm also wondering about the moral center of this film. And I've talked about this before, but I think that Goodfellas has a moral center. You have the beginning, the first half of the movie. It's all about the glitz. It's all about the excitement and the benefits of being in that particular world. And then you get what we see at the very beginning of the movie, uh, a murder, the body is being buried, and then everything unravels after that. And I know there are some people who walk away from Goodfellas and say, wow, that must be cool to be a part of that world. But when I walked away from that movie, I, I thought to myself, I'm I'm so thankful I'm not a part of that world. So I'm interested in the moral center and what this film will say about that type of life and what that looks like uh, and also what that does to a person. So, yeah, The Irishman, uh, it's it's going to be a good November 1st, I, I'm, I'm hoping at least. <laughs> Hello? Hey, my friend. I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm gonna put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. Our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. Only three people in the world have one of these. And only one of them is Irish. I heard you paint houses. No, please, no, no, please. Yes, I do, sir. Well, one of the, the thorny things about Scorsese, at least in this mode, is 
the 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 level to which the the misbehavior and the immorality that he depicts on screen is is seductive um that was a uh criticism that was leveled at the wolf of wall street most recently that you know obviously that movie has a very clear point of view it doesn't condone jordan belford at all and it makes very clear that these are evil men doing evil things but he also doesn't shy away from the fact that living the high life for these characters and living immorally is fun for them and kind of threading that needle where he makes that aspect of the lifestyle uh, realistic without making it so compelling that it sort of draws the audience into sharing that viewpoint. That's kind of an interesting needle to watch him thread, an interesting tightrope walk. I'm really curious to see how he manages that in in The Irishman. Uh, well, that was your number four, so I'll just continue the wave with uh, my number four, which is another crime picture, actually. This is Uncut Gems. It's coming out on December 13th, and this is from the Safdie brothers. Uh, more recently, they were the directors of the Robert Pattinson starring Good Time, which takes place over the course of a single crazy night as a hood kind of is running from place to place, just trying to keep one step ahead of all the bad things that are coming after him. I didn't care overall for the film. I thought it was fine. I had some problems with it, but there's no arguing that the Safdie brothers directing in that film was on point. And I'm really excited to see what they do with this new picture, which stars Adam Sandler as a New York City jeweler who's kind of looking for the next big score and gets in, of course, over his head. And I'm interested in it for the Safties directing. I'm also interested to see Adam Sandler take on a less comedic role and flex his dramatic chops. We all know he has it in him. It's a side of him as an actor that we see all too little of. So I'm really looking forward to uh, witnessing more of that in Uncut Gems. So it got a lot of reviews coming out of the Toronto International Film Festival. I can't wait to sit down with it and see what all the fuss is about. Yeah, I haven't seen a trailer. I don't even know if there there's a trailer out there, but this just missed my list. I liked Good Time a lot. I mean, that was a that's like a movie on drugs. There's just there's there's so much craft that went into that picture and the synopsis for this one alone makes me excited. And then too, like you said, I'm I'm always excited to hear about Adam Sandler stretching himself and being in a good movie. He's in so many bad movies, and we joke about all the <laughs> Netflix films that he makes, but he is a talented actor. I really do think when he tries and when he's with the right director, he can do some great stuff. So I can only imagine the type of craziness and shenanigans that this movie will hold for him and for us as an audience. So yeah, I, I'm very much excited about Uncut Gems and um, hoping that it's going to make a big splash. Yeah. And this is another one also, Wade, that stars Lakeith Stanfield. So, you know, even if he, you're disappointed in Trey Edward Schultz's waves, he has another chance to, uh, to redeem himself with, with Uncut Gems. So he's going to get two swings 
at the at the pitch uh, this award season, at least. So you got that to look forward to as well. Hey, there you go. So my number three actually continues a, our trend, uh, crime trend, and that is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. It's supposed to be hitting theaters on November 27th. His new film follows a detective as he investigates in clue-like fashion. A death in a family where anyone could be a suspect. The film stars Chris Evans, uh, Tony Collette, Daniel Craig, among many, many others. There are so many talented performers in this film. And it looks to be, Kevin, violent and delicious. I, I've seen one trailer. I don't think I want to see the second trailer. I think that was just released. And this just has me, it has me pumped. The reviews have been very good so far. And that has me excited because with a film like this, what I'm always looking for is, is the end, is wrapping it all up. You can come up with, with some sort of fun whodunit scenario, but can you close it? And from the sound of things, people seem to think that Johnson did close it in this movie. So yeah, Knives Out, November 27th. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family have gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it, by the way? The party? Pre-my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. Everyone has those directors who, when they come out with a new movie, or when you hear that they're coming out with a new movie, you immediately sort of sit up straight and, and take notes and go, oh, I can't wait to see that. Uh, the Coen brothers are some of those filmmakers for me. Ryan Johnson is another one of those directors. I like him quite a bit. And yeah, Knives Out, that is a good pick for your number three. Another one of those directors of the stripe that I just mentioned for me is Bong Joon-ho, the, the Korean auteur. Most recently, he directed Okja for Netflix, which was a rare misfire, at least in, in my mind, for him. But I love him as a filmmaker. I love the sensibility he brings to all of the films that he directs. And his new film, Parasite, is my number three. It's slated for release October 11th. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It is a movie that I've been hotly anticipating. It's a, a return to thriller territory for him. So Okja was more kind of like a a, a parable, an environmentalist parable, uh, a little bit more whimsy in that one. This one seems to be going a bit darker, maybe more of the memories of murder bong that uh, I originally uh, fell in love with. Uh, it's a thriller with overtones kind of of class warfare. This is a movie about a family that cons their way into the good graces of a richer family. So they offer their services as an English tutor for the rich family's children, then as an art therapist for this rich family's children. And over time, they kind of insinuate themselves 
into this upper class life. Uh, Bong himself has described it as a pitch black modern fairy tale, and I am 100% on board for it. So Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, that is my number three most anticipated film of the next few months. Yeah, I'm excited about that movie too. Also disappointed with Okja. I'm not as uh, knowledgeable as uh, Bong Joon-ho's work as you are. And so my goal is to watch one or two more of his films before I see Parasite. We'll see if that actually happens. But it definitely sounds like it would be up his alley. This story seems <laughs> like him. So that that has me uh, looking forward to the movie as well. Have 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 you seen The Host? That's my no. question for you. No, I haven't seen okay. The Host. I haven't seen Memories of a Murder either. So uh, those are maybe oh. t- two of the ones I need oh. to get to. I thought you had seen Memories of Murder. Okay, you have to see Memories of Murder. I know you're a huge fan of Zodiac. And Memories yeah. of Murder is Zodiac- Eight years before Zodiac was born. Ah, so okay. it, I would say that Fincher, you know, he made an okay movie, but Memories of Murder is the original, and you need to see that ASAP. So okay. that is that is definitely your homework before Parasite comes out. Yeah, well, it it's currently streaming on Amazon Prime, so it's it's there, and I just need to watch it. But yeah, okay. Well I'll I'll do I'll do that. I'm gonna try to commit right now. Uh, to watch that film because yeah like you said i love zodiac and if this one if you say this one's better then that means it's probably a fantastic movie uh we're talking about uh highly acclaimed foreign films and i'm gonna shift directions just a little bit uh to a movie that i have to stay on brand i have to stay on brand and so my number two for the fall 2019 is Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, J.J. Abrams. It's supposed to be released December 20th. I'm genuinely looking forward to the quote-unquote conclusion of the Skywalker saga. I like The Force Awakens quite a bit. It made my top 10. I watch it periodically. Uh, my kids watch it, and I, I always... If, if it's on, I always gravitate towards the TV. It's just an entertaining picture I thought that The Last Jedi was phenomenal, and I hope that Abrams can continue along the path that Ryan Johnson laid with that film. I I don't want him to backtrack. I want him to move forward into the future, into new territory, instead of treading the well-worn path that we've seen with other franchise films, and even within uh, the Star Wars franchise itself. Also, what is Abrams going to make of Destiny? What is he going to make of that hero persona? And Johnson, with some revelations about Ray, sort of changed courses a bit when it came to Destiny and when it came to this Force Providence. And I'm I'm fascinated with with how uh, Abrams is going to close this thing out. I mean, it could be incredible, Kevin. And it could also be really bad. I don't know, but I'm really excited to check it out.
you know, I I don't expect the movie to be to be bad. There's just there's too much uh, money that's been poured into it. There's too much talent, both in front of and behind the camera, for it to be a full on disaster. I don't think that that's a realistic outcome. Whether or not it's actually going to be really good instead of, you know, pretty good and entertaining the way maybe The Force Awakens was, that remains to be seen. We will see. I think that, at least for me, Star Wars is a movie that kind of lives or dies on the craft behind it. I, I've found myself over the years becoming less and less attracted to the stories that are being told through it and, and the world building and more and more interested in, like, the original, just John Williams' score and just how tight that entire uh, first film is, A New Hope. And with The Last Jedi, which in a lot of ways was kind of nonsensical from a plot standpoint, but I just didn't care because how much verve Johnson brought to the visuals and how sometimes it almost felt like an old school samurai movie. Stylistically, it was great. I'm less confident that Abrams can deliver the goods in that area, but hey, maybe he can. I'm sure I'll see it either way. So, <laughs> and you know, along with the rest of the entire Western Hemisphere. So, yeah, there you go. It's funny because you say I'm sure I'll see it uh, either way. I'm I'm almost 100 percent sure that you will have to see this movie in order yeah. to be accepted into the film criticism fold i I think we have to talk about it on the podcast um oh yeah obviously yeah so that'll be that'll be a fun episode it's an early christmas present for all of us yeah for sure um my number two is we're going to go back to johnson it's knives out that is i can't imagine a better thanksgiving weekend then, you know, have, going to Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner with the family and then the next day going to the movie theater and sitting down for a good old fashioned parlor room whodunit uh, directed by Ryan Johnson. That just sounds like a wonderful holiday weekend. The cast is unbelievably stacked with Chris Evans, Daniel Craig, Lakeith Stanfield, Tony Collette. Uh, I, you know, the list goes on and on. Johnson is an incredible director, as I've already said. The cast is really great, and it's a genre that isn't really done anymore in at least you know mainstream big budget filmmaking. So I'm incredibly curious to see how Johnson managed to convince a studio to throw all of their you know marketing power and money behind uh, a genre that, in a lot of ways, has kind of fallen a little bit more out of favor. I I trust him entirely. I think it's going to be great. So that's my number two uh, for my list. Yeah, I mean, it, the the story behind it, it, from what I understand, is he he wrote this film. Uh, his producer partner uh, got together, and they basically signed Daniel Craig, and then they were like, "Okay, somebody pay for this," and which, <laughs> which is. I mean, it's an incredible strategy, isn't it? It's like, yeah, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we pay for this film? It's already written. It's ready to be shot here in a couple months. Daniel Craig is going to do it, I think, right before he had some space in between Bond. And, I mean, (laughs) it's just smart. And it's, like you said, this kind of chamber piece – it doesn't it's it's it doesn't look like a, a big budget uh it it just looks like it's going to be fantastic a nice thriller drama and uh that's you know it's all we can hope for 
And speaking of Daniel Craig, who doesn't hear the description? Daniel Craig plays a Kentucky Fried Hercule Poirot and doesn't say immediately, two tickets to that movie, please. (laughs) I defy anybody to not immediately want to see that movie, and that is this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think, did you mention Michael Shannon? I think he's in it as well. Oh, how could I forget Michael Shannon? America's national treasure, Michael Shannon, is also in this movie. <laughs> I Can you tell that I'm excited about Knives Out? Yeah. I'm really excited about Knives Out. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I need to backtrack to. Uh, another national treasure that is actually going to be in The Irishman, Jesse Plemons, is in The Irishman. And so oh, yeah. you just have some of these actors that, you know, anytime they're on the screen, I love to see them. And they're just kind of cropping up in the fall 2019. and. I'm excited about it. I do want to go to my number one. And I mentioned Star Wars. I mentioned being on brand. This next one is probably even more on brand. Uh, But I'm really (laughs) looking forward to Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. So here's the the synopsis for the movie. The Austrian-blessed Franz Jägenstadter, a conscientious objector, refuses to fight for the Nazis in World War II. There's a trailer out there. I have not seen it. But I'm excited about this movie for a couple of reasons. Malik is supposedly returning to his more linear narrative roots in this film. And A Hidden Life has it, it received rave reviews at Cannes Film Festival in May. And it also continues Malik's faith-fueled focus uh, with the main character's Christianity playing a large role in the story. So all of that out there... Uh, has me very excited. I liked uh, Night of Cups. I think it's good. I wasn't a huge fan of Song to Song, uh, but this one just has me very intrigued. The word has been great. So December 13th, I'm, I'm really pumped about checking it out. What's happened to our country? We're killing innocent people, raiding other countries, preying on the weak. If our leaders, if they're evil, what does one do? You have a duty to the fatherland. The church tells you so. You cannot say no to your race and your hope. You are a traitor. There was a time when A Hidden Life would have been right at my number one as well. I feel like... Night of Cups and Song to Song have both dampened my enthusiasm for this later period of Malik's career enough that I can't fully get work up the same frothing excitement that I would have had for him in the wake of The Tree of Life and To the Wonder. That said, I am interested to see him return to doing a period piece. I think that his, you know, his best work does tend to be when he is looking back into the past and allowing maybe that slight remove to fuel some of the um some of the concerns and some of the aesthetic approaches that he takes to his films. I'm definitely intrigued about this film. It's one another one of those films that I am going to see this movie. Make no mistake about it. I'm less apt to be super excited about it, but it is Malick, and he does make films like no other filmmaker that we have working right now. So 
if if nothing else, that should earn him the benefit of the doubt. Um, that's a good pick. Yeah, I I I'm really excited about it, and um, just what this change might mean to him, and what maybe he's even learned. He seems like a filmmaker who, at least from what I've read from the the seldom interviews that he does, it seems like he is someone who wants to continue to grow. And I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated by that. So uh, that's why I'm looking forward to this movie. One of the reasons why I'm looking forward to this movie. Well, we're going to go from from your number one, which is probably going to involve twirling of of some variety or, or another. <laughs> I will be disappointed if there's no twirling in a Malik movie. We're going to move from that to crazy seafarer's beard and pirate-ish lingo and black and white craziness. It's Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse coming out on October 18th. It stars Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe as lighthouse keepers, and crazy stuff is going to happen. I am purposely avoiding most trailers and descriptions of this film because I want to go into it fresh. And I wouldn't do that for just any filmmaker, but Eggers... With The Witch, he showed himself just such a, a singular filmmaker with such a, uh, a, such a unique and, and rigorous filmmaking sensibility that I really want to be able to go into his new film completely fresh, having no preconceptions about what it's going to be like, and just experience it as close to uh, fresh as, as possible. I think that Robert Pattinson by now has established himself as a very good actor. I'm really curious to see how he and Willem Dafoe play off of each other. And just, I, I, I love how Eggers in The Witch was able to craft such an oppressive atmosphere without resorting to a lot of filmmaking pyrotechnics in the sense of, you know, having boogity boogity things jump out at you from the shadows. It's more subtle than that and horrifying than that, but he does it through other means than, than what we're used to seeing out of a horror movie or a thriller movie. The lighthouse gives him a chance to do that in a completely different setting from, you know, uh, pre-revolution America. And like I said, with Johnson, I'm 100% here for it. The What I've heard of it makes it sound bonkers and exactly what I'm looking for out of an Eggers film. So yeah, that's my number one. I'll be there opening night. What made your last keeper leave? He believed that there was some enchantment in the light. Went mad, he did. Tall tales. But... Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to watch this movie. I'm sure we'll talk about it. I, I don't know if I'm looking forward to it like you are. I think The Witch was made well. It's very disturbing and just kind of not my cup of tea. And so I'm kind of – I'm thinking through The Lighthouse and I'm wondering, okay, how, how am I going to feel about this movie? I have no doubt that it is going to be effective 
will it be effective for me? For me, we'll you know we'll see as uh, <laughs> after I watch it. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'm on record as as saying The Witch is a very fine movie that I don't really have much desire to see ever again. And I think that that's kind of why I have so much fascination for The Lighthouse, because in a way, it's going to allow me to re-experience the same kind of theatrical experience I had with The Witch without having to watch The Witch again, if that makes sense. And, okay. and so, you know, it's it's something that I don't take lightly, uh, but I, I can't stay away from it. I'm like a moth to the flame when it comes to Robert Eggers' films, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's definitely an interesting pick, and I, I think that that movie will be uh, talked about a lot this fall. Kevin, were there any other movies that we have not talked about that you are looking forward to and you want to keep an eye on and you want our, our listeners to keep an eye on this fall? Uh, well, I already mentioned I was looking forward to uh, Waves from Trey Edward Schultz. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Marriage Story. That's the new Noah Baumbach film that's coming out on December 6th. It stars Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson as a married couple who are trying to navigate new tensions in their marriage after they have a child. I mean, I I love both of those actors. Uh, I think Driver is just a, an incredibly interesting actor to watch. Scarlett Johansson has really just, uh, in the last five years or so, has really just shown herself to be a very adventurous and and uh, fascinating actress to watch. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing that film. I'm also looking forward to uh, Fernando Morales's The Two Popes coming out on uh, Thanksgiving weekend. This is a film that's kind of a two-hander starring Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. Uh, one of them playing uh, Pope Benedict XVI, and the other playing Benedict's successor, Pope Francis, and kind of the conversations that happen between them behind locked doors, or at least kind of the the imagined conversations or the imagined dynamic between the two of them. That sounds really interesting. I'm also interested in Sam Mendez's uh, Christmas Day release 1917. It's a World War One picture. I, I'm a little on the fence about this. I think Mendez is just, I, he's another director that I really appreciate his visual style. I don't always appreciate the, the movies he makes overall, but I think he his approach to filmmaking produces some really compelling stuff. And World War One is some subject matter that, at least in American film, we don't really see as much. It's not something that fires the American imagination maybe as much as a conflict like World War II. So I'm I'm interested to see uh, where this this movie goes. Um, it seems a little bit Dunkirk flavored. At least the the trailer may it look. The trailer steals a lot of the beats from uh, the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. So it might not be very good at all. But I'm interested, and I will definitely be seeking it out as soon as I can. It, it definitely seems like a child of of Dunkirk. Now, there's a, those are good picks. Uh, a couple that we haven't talked about so far. Corey Finley, who directed Thoroughbreds, he just released or actually just finished a movie called Bad Education starring Hugh Jackman. 
It's about a public school embezzlement scandal, and I believe HBO just picked that up. They purchased it, and it's gotten some buzz. So I'm looking forward to that. The El Camino, uh, a Breaking Bad movie. So there is a Breaking Bad movie. It does follow uh, Jesse's character, played by Aaron Paul, of course. It is going to debut on Netflix October 11th. I I don't know what to expect, but I trust Vince Gilligan because of Better Call Saul. He knew what he was doing there, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm sure that's going to be uh, interesting, to say the least. And then, Kevin... I can't help myself. I am very much looking forward to A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood starring Tom Hanks, directed by Marielle Heller. I It's, it's a feel-good movie. I know it's going to be a feel-good movie, but it's okay to just have a little bit of the warm fuzzies every once in a while because there are some dark films coming out this fall season, so I think I'm going to need this at some point. So uh, I'm, I'm excited about that one. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers in here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. You're not going to get any stigma from me about feel-good movies. There is absolutely nothing wrong with those. I do have some reservations about Hanks possibly being miscast as Fred Rogers, but I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. And I mean, Won't You Be My Neighbor was just in some ways such a gut punch of a documentary. It was so a balm to the soul in in a lot of ways. So... I am not going to say no to a double helping of soul balms uh, when it comes to Fred Rogers' legacy. So yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go see that. Yeah, I will go cry at that. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to admit it. I was telling people, you know, I watched the trailer. Trailer's emotional. At least I thought it was. And I, I, I said, you know, the tagline should be this November. Get ready to cry. That would just it would it would work on so many different levels because I think that's how. Many of us are going to feel, and I probably will uh, shed a couple tears in that movie. Listeners, that is our segment on fall 2019. We'll see what shakes out, what pans out at the end of the year when we put together our top 10 list. Let us know about the films that you are looking forward to coming up here in the next couple of months. Once again, that's at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod on Twitter. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Next week... We, if everything goes according to plan, are tackling James Gray's Ad Astra. You do not want to miss our review. For now, I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.